Well, uh, I'm a dad of three, and one of my kids' favorite songs right now is this song called Sunflower. And the song Sunflower, if you've never heard it, is in a movie called Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. And we got a lot of kids in the service who probably you know that movie, but maybe even adults know that movie because it's actually a really good movie. You should go watch it. Uh, but this song, Sunflower, is one of their favorite songs right now, and so it's always playing in our house, and it's actually really catchy if you've never heard it. It's catchy, right? Come on now. Wake up, people. It's catchy. And here's what you know about this song. If you've never heard it before, if you just heard it that first time, it doesn't take long to catch the beat, to catch the rhythm, to catch the melody. And you can kind of sing along a little bit, right? That's dad at home all the time, right? I could kind of sing along, but I quickly began to realize this song is in our house all the time that I didn't actually know the lyrics, I didn't know the content, so I got with my kids. I said, hey, Google, tell us what the lyrics of Sunflower actually are. And I remember just looking at the lyrics with my kids to this song that I heard the beat, heard the rhythm, heard the melody too, so many times before. But I began to look at the lyrics and think, I had no idea. I I didn't realize that's what it was talking about. I didn't realize that's what he was saying. And I began to, to learn the lyrics, and I began to learn the content, and the song came alive for the very first time. Because I didn't just know the beat, the rhythm, the melody, I knew the content. You see, we've been in this series, Who Do You Say That I, Who Do you Say That I Am, in the Gospel of Mark, for 10 months. It's 16 chapters. We've done 35 sermons. And listen, the whole goal of all of that is to look at the content of Jesus Christ. To look at his person, his work, his, his character, his nature, and to see what is the content? Who is Jesus really? And, and what I can tell you is this. Even if I don't know you in here, all of us in here at some level, we knew the beat, we knew the rhythm, we knew the melody of Jesus before the series. Right? We knew like Jesus was a good teacher. I mean, Jesus was a good guy. I mean, I'm coming to church kind of to worship Jesus. Maybe you even knew what we talked about last Sunday, like Jesus dies on the cross. It's this beautiful sacrifice of love. And you kind of knew the beat, the rhythm, and the melody just enough to sing along. Just enough to come to church, stand up, sing a song, sit down, pray together over uh, lunch. And you kind of knew it just enough to sing along. But my hope has been throughout these 16 chapters, throughout these 10 months, throughout these 35 sermons is that you now know the content of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, maybe for some of you, has come alive for the very first time. That's the hope. And that's the hope. Listen, as we look at our passage today, we are going to look at the most important content of not just this book, but of all of history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see what is the actual content. Maybe you've heard about the resurrection. You've gone to an Easter service. You've gotten dressed up in khakis and a collared shirt. You know the beat. You know the rhythm. You know the melody. Hunt Easter eggs. But what is the content of the resurrection? I believe as we look at the content of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, It will come alive to you for the very first time for some of you, maybe anew for some of you, as we look at the content of Jesus. Let's do that together. Mark 15. Grab a Bible. If you didn't already, 
Mark 15. We're going to start at the end of Mark 15, verse 42. We'll go right through chapter 16 as well. Uh, grab a Bible, put it in front of you. There's Bibles as you walk in the service uh, and bookshelves to your right and left. Just know always you can grab one of those, take one of those. We'd love nothing more than you to use God's word. Mark 15, verse 42, it says this, And when the evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Now I want you to notice, we're going to keep reading, but this is where every story ends. Every story in all of history ends with death. This story has a chapter 16. This story continues. We see it in verse 1 of 16. It says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll the stone away for us from the entrance of the tomb? They didn't really come prepared. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back, and it was very large. And entering the tomb, they walk in, and they see a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. Other gospels tell us this is an angel. They see this angel, and they were alarmed. And the angel says to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here you see the place where they laid him. So, the first point today, if you're taking notes, is unexpected events. As we look at the resurrection, we're going to see some unexpected events. And we see it just in this passage that we read. And we see it first with this guy named Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, at the burial, after, before the burial, Jesus is up on a cross. And he doesn't stay there. He goes and he's, he's buried. And the person who takes his body from cross to grave was Joseph of Arimathea. Now, why does that matter at all? Why is that an unexpected event? Well, Mark tells us in this passage, Joseph was part of the council. The council was the Sanhedrin. If you've been around, we've talked about this. The Sanhedrin was partially responsible for condemning Jesus to death. They were this high religious uh, council and officials, and, and Joseph was a part of that. And yet he's the one who goes, gets Jesus' body wraps it, and takes it to a tomb. And that day, and in our day, still the same, that was a sign of respect, a sign of honor. Right? Now, you got to picture this scene. Joseph, part of the crew who helped kill Jesus, now goes to Pilate. He goes public to a Roman official and says, hey, can I have the body of Jesus? And as I tried to imagine that scene, I just thought, what must Pilate have been thinking? I mean, Pilate, who, if you remember the story, said, hey, we don't have to kill Jesus. Would you like this guy? And the crowd chanted, no, we want, we want Jesus. And the Sanhedrin was so adamant, Joseph being a part of that, so adamant, we have to kill Jesus. And, and then now Jesus has died, still hanging on a cross. And one of those guys who is condemning Jesus to death, so insistent on his death, 
now comes and says, hey, I want to honor, I want to respect the body of Jesus. If I was Pilate, I would have thought, bro, did you switch teams? I mean, did the other guys know you're here? I mean, what would they think now that, that you're trying to honor Jesus? That's what I would have thought. That's the situation. And you see, the reality is Joseph of Arimathea, he is risking status. He is risking his reputation. He is risking his powerful place in the Jewish council to honor Jesus. That's why Mark says it this way. He says it took courage for Joseph to do this. And that's not the only thing that took courage for, for Joseph to come out and say, hey, I want to honor the body of Jesus, whom I just said we should kill. That's not the only thing that took courage. Again, just imagine the scene. Jesus is still on a cross. Joseph goes and gets the body, and he wraps it, and he takes it to a tomb. I mean, just, just picture for a moment, hours on a cross, Jesus beaten and bloodied. The smell, the stench of death, the fragility of his body that had been hanging on a cross for hours. And Joseph has the courage not only to risk his status and reputation and power, but just to go grab the body of Jesus and wrap it and take it to the tomb. This is an unexpected event, right? You would think maybe Peter would have done this. John, the disciple Jesus loved, would have done this. Who honors the body of Jesus? One of the Sanhedrin. One of the people who condemned him to death. You see already, we're going to get to this in a moment, you see the transformative effects of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Remember last week, who's the first person to declare after Jesus dies? He is the son of God. Is it one of his followers? Is it his mom? No, it was a Roman centurion who was overseeing soldiers who killed Jesus. And you begin to see the resurrection changes everything. Listen, that's why we're not talking about it just on Easter. That's why it's Easter on September 1st. Because this is a transformative thing. It has changed all of history. It changed people who put Jesus to death. We see that first with this Unexpected event, Joseph of Arimathea. Fast forward to the resurrection, chapter 16. Our next unexpected event, we see Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, are the first people to show up at the empty tomb. Now, you have to picture this again. The first people to show up to the empty tomb are women. The first people to hear he is risen, he's not here, are women. Now, that may not shock you, but it would have shocked people back then. You see, in that day, in that culture, women were devalued. They had rights maybe above a slave. In a courtroom uh, where they were trying someone, if there were to be an eyewitness who was a woman, oftentimes they wouldn't consider her testimony legitimate. I remember I was telling my oldest daughter this and trying to explain to her the context of that day and just those few things I just shared with you about women being devalued and just above slaves and, and they didn't consider their testimony legitimate in a courtroom. And I was telling my, my oldest daughter this and her response was incredible. She just said, well, that's rude. <laughs> you should never disrespect a woman. And amen, right? That, that's so true. And part of what I love about this, listen, 
the most impactful, the most important event in all of history, who's there? Women. That God is saying, the culture wants to devalue women, I'm going to move them on up. Right? I'm going to place them at the most impactful, the most important event in all of history. And that's part of what I love about this moment, this unexpected event. The other part, though, I love is this brings confidence to the resurrection account. Right? You see, in that day, women were devalued. Eyewitness wasn't considered valid in court. But yet, who does God place at the empty tomb? Women. And you got to know, in that day, in our day, people still do this, Nat Geo specials. Every year. Hey, the resurrection was concocted. It was crafted. It was made up a long time after because, you know, the disciples, I mean, they were really sad and distraught over Jesus, their Savior, their leader. He died, and they just couldn't let it go. And so later they came, and they crafted a story, and they made up a, this brilliant story like Jesus came back to life. And you see, what's, what's hard about that is if you're going to craft a story, the last thing you do is crafting that story so you can build the hype of Christianity and the resurrection. The last thing you do is put women at the tomb. Why? Because you wouldn't believe it. It wouldn't have credibility. In fact, early on in that day, there was a writer named uh, Celsus, and you don't have to have read Celsus, but you just need to know he was a philosopher back in the day. And, and what he said about the resurrection, he said, I can't believe it. Why? There's women at the tomb. He called women hysterical. I'll let you take that up with him. But this was a big reason why early on, people didn't actually believe the resurrection happened. So if you're going to craft a story that everybody will believe, so that 2,000 years later, we're still buying books called the Bible. It's still the best-selling book of all time. So that 2,000 years later, on Easter, a few billion people across the world are there standing, raised hands, worshiping the risen Christ. If you're going to build a movement, create the hype train, create the movement of Christianity, craft the story, make it up, you don't put women at the tomb. But that's what happened. Because that's what happened. So this should give us confidence. And maybe some of you are thinking, you've seen some Nat Geo specials. You've read some magazines, you've heard some friends talk about the resurrection, and you're like, well, Tim, okay, women at the tomb, like, unexpected event, like, that's supposed to make me think the resurrection was valid, like, that's all you got? And I would say, no, the whole historical account of the resurrection brings about fact, not fiction. I mean, if you just look at verse 1 of chapter 16, you see real people with real names. Mary Magdalene, Mary mother of James. Earlier, we saw Joseph of Arimathea. We saw his son's names. And if you've been tracking with us in the Gospel of Mark, especially since the beginning, what we said at the very beginning was Mark is our first gospel written. That it was written, we think, about 40 years after the events that just occurred. And that in all of history, for ancient manuscripts and and writings, that is incredible to have a document 40 years after the actual events. And it's incredible because people were still alive. You think about Jesus was 33, 40 years, 73, lots of people are still alive. Mark, who wrote this, was a little kid during these events. He's still alive. He wrote this letter. It's being distributed to other people. They're reading these accounts, and they're looking like Mary Magdalene was there? Like Mary, the mother of James? And maybe somebody knew James. They're like, dude, I did not know your mom was in the Bible. That's incredible. Joseph's sons. Like, people could have gone to them and said, hey, 
Mark wrote this letter like, have you, have you heard what he said about you? Have you heard what he is claiming about Jesus risen from the dead? Like, can you, can you verify that? You see, this whole account is historical. There's no once upon a time in the story, kids, right? It's the first day of the week, right? We get actual details. Jesus of Nazareth. Hey, go and meet him in Galilee. Real people, real places, real resurrection. We see that through these unexpected events. Second thing we see is the resurrection has transformative effects, Chapter 6, verse 7, look at that verse with me. The angel is still talking. He says, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Notice the angel tells both Marys, hey, hey, go tell the, the disciples. But she doesn't just say, go tell the disciples. She says, hey, go tell Peter. Now, Peter was one of the disciples, so why single Peter out? The disciples, the closest followers of Jesus, Peter was like one of the head disciples. So if the angel had just said, hey, go tell the disciples, like, of course that includes Peter. Why single him out? If you know the story, you know Peter has had his moments, Right? I mean, just two nights before this, we're on Sunday, on Friday night. What did Peter do when Jesus was going to the cross? He denied Jesus, not once, three times. To a little servant girl, he ran away. Jesus' darkest moment, Peter deserts him. That was two nights before. A little bit earlier in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 8, when Jesus says this statement that we have over here on the banner, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, hey, you're the Christ. And he's really confident about that until Jesus explains what being the Christ means. And and Jesus says, yeah, I am the Christ, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die, and then on the third day, I'm going to resurrect. And you see Peter get rebuked by Jesus, and, and Jesus calls Peter Satan. Not a great moment, right? That wasn't in his scrapbook. That wasn't in his journal, right? Not one of the highlights of his life. This is Peter, right? And so maybe, especially after the denial at the cross, maybe everybody would have thought, maybe the Marys would have thought, maybe the disciples, maybe Peter himself would have thought, I was on the team, but maybe now I'm out. I mean, sure, everybody else ran too. Like all the disciples scattered, But they didn't deny Jesus three times to a servant girl. Jesus never called them Satan. And maybe if if the angel had said, hey, just go get the disciples, maybe they would have left out Peter. So the angel specifically says, hey, go get the disciples, but you also go get Peter. He's still a part of this. My grace is sufficient for him. Listen, this morning, maybe some of you, two nights ago, you did some pretty bad things. Maybe several chapters ago in your life. You did some things that if you're honest, man, if people knew what I did, Tim, like I would not sit next to them in church right now. 
They wouldn't want to sit next to me. Like, these are things I wouldn't journal or I wouldn't scrapbook. I wouldn't Facebook about. Like, these things, like just last night, just two nights ago that I just did. And maybe you think, like, hey, if Jesus is grabbing people today and say, hey, come, be a part of my mission. I invite you into my story. That if Jesus is grabbing people, he's not grabbing me. Because maybe because of what I've done, what I've thought, what I've said, maybe I'm off the team. And God is showing you in this moment, he's placed you here this morning to show you you're not too far gone. Go get the disciples and and go get you. Even though he denied you, yeah. Even though you called him Satan, yeah. Go get Peter. And we see the transformative effects of the resurrection. What happens when they finally go get Peter? What happens when Peter hears the news? Jesus is alive. Uh, We know from this account that the, the women were astonished. They were scared. They were fearful. And they went away and they didn't say anything. But eventually they shook that off. Right? And they go and tell the disciples. We know that from the other gospel accounts. We know that from the book of Acts that this movement of Christianity starts to spread. So we know Peter hears the news. What does Peter do when he hears the news? The Gospel of Luke tells us that Peter goes to the empty tomb and he walks in and he doesn't see Jesus and that he leaves marveling, Luke tells us. Amazed. Transformed. We also see Peter in the book of Acts go from a doubting disciple to a bold proclaimer, that he starts to proclaim Jesus boldly. The one who, listen, catch this, the one who denied Jesus three times to a servant girl is now standing before an audience of 3,000 proclaiming the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus passionately, the Holy Spirit moving through him so that 3,000 people decide to go from death to life, to give their life to Jesus because of Peter. You see the transformative effects of the resurrection. We don't just see it with Peter. We see it with the rest of the disciples. Remember, we give, I mean, poor Peter, right? Moment of silence for Peter. I mean, we we give Peter a hard time. We give him all the flack, and he deserves most of it, right? Because he was so bold and uh, confident and then just never followed through. But the other disciples ran as well. Again, One of the Jewish high council is taking the body of Jesus. Not James, not John, not Peter, not Andrew. And so all the disciples ran, all of them scattered, and yet they're changed too. That we see the resurrection events change them too, that they go on to live boldly for Jesus. You can read it in the book of Acts as they build this church, this movement of Christianity. But they don't just live boldly for Jesus, they die, all of them but one, Die courageously for Jesus. The ones who scattered, the ones who ran in Jesus' most difficult moment are martyrs for Jesus. You see the transformative effects of the resurrection. We don't just see it with the disciples in that day. We see it with disciples in our day. You see people today, and maybe you're some of those people, the resurrection of Jesus has transformed you. You see it with people like Lee Strobel, author of Case for Christ, not always the author of Case for Christ. He used to write for the Chicago Tribune. 
And he set out on a journey to prove that the resurrection was false. And he came out of that journey proving that the resurrection was true. He investigated the claims of the Bible of the resurrection. He wanted to prove that it was false and came out believing that it was true, so much so that he wrote The Case for Christ, which is now a movie. You see it in a guy like C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, who wrote Mere Christianity, an apologetic book on behalf of Christianity, who wrote Chronicles of Narnia, books that turned into a movie. And you see C.S. Lewis as that guy, but once he was an atheist. And as the story goes, he was debating another famous author named J.R. Tolkien, who wrote the books The Lord of the Rings, also now a movie. And he was debating J.R. Tolkien on Christianity, and something clicked, but it didn't quite click right away. And three days later, the story goes, he was in a sidecar and a motorcycle on his way to the zoo. (laughs) And at that moment, he said, Before I got to the zoo, I wasn't a Christian. But when I got to the zoo, I was. Isn't that amazing? The transformative power of the resurrection. That that C.S. Lewis was an atheist. And now you know him as like the writer of Aslan. Right? Like how does that happen? The power of the resurrection. I've seen this in my life. I used to uh, share the story of how I became a pastor. Kind of like this. People would ask me, just like they ask me now, like earlier on in life, though, they would say, hey, how, how did you become a pastor? And I would kind of share just starting a ministry, and I didn't want to freak people out, so I would just be like, you know, in college, I worked for a church, and I led some mission trips, and I got to teach on a stage, and I got to disciple people, and that means like showing them what it means to follow Jesus, and, and I began to really enjoy that, and I thought, uh, maybe I should go to seminary and get my master's in the Bible because that's what you do. And, and then I, I took a job at this church in Austin, Texas. And, and I, I used to share my story that way. And one of my really good friends came along and he heard that story as I was telling it to someone else one time. And he said, bro, that is not what happened. Like, stop discounting your story. And I was like, well, I just, I was new in ministry. I was like, I just don't want to freak people out. I know being a pastor is weird, and, and I just don't want to freak people out. And, and he said, dude, you have to share what God did. And so that clicked for me, and something changed in me. So today, if I meet my neighbor, and they ask me, what do you do for a living? I say, I'm a pastor. And their response is usually just silence. Or switch the conversation, but if they ask more, and sometimes if they don't, I begin to tell them, you know what, I I was in college, and I was running far away from God. I didn't want to have anything to do with God. I grew up in the church, but all I heard was rules and regulations, not Jesus and the gospel. And I was running away from God as fast as I could, but God, through some other people, through the local church, through his grace and through his truth in the Bible, I began to read the Bible for the first time, and it came alive to me. I began to investigate the claims of Jesus, and it came alive to me, and it grabbed my heart, and something changed in me, and it never let go. And this is like at a barbecue. <laughs> and, you know, they're like, oh, okay, that's cool. Well, I'm uh, an attorney. Or, um, you know, and they just, they don't even know what to say about that. They're just like, well, it's nice to meet you. <laughs> but that's what I say now because that's what happened. The resurrection of Jesus Christ completely transformed 
my life. Listen, if you call yourself a Christian, a believer in Christ, here's what has not transformed your life. Here's why we're not simply gathering today as the church. We are not just, Christianity is not, you are not as a Christian, a person who's gathered with a group of people because you align over a set of similar religious beliefs. You're not simply a group of people who say, hey, we kind of agree with all the same morals. You're not simply a group of people who say, we have common affinities that bring us together. You are a people, if you are a Christian, if you're a part of Christianity in the local church, you're a people who have radically been transformed by the resurrected Christ. That's what aligns us. That's what defines us. That's what marks us. It's this event. It's this unexpected event of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that has transformative effects on our lives. Now, some of you who are paying attention and reading along your Bible are thinking, Tim, 7 and 8 talk about the angel telling his disciples they went away, they fled, and astonishment seized them, and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Is that where we're going to end? Because if so, that's like the worst ending to any story ever. Like, where's the happily ever after, Tim? And some of you may be thinking, like, and Tim, when I look at my Bible, like, there's verses 9 through 20. Like, what is going on there? And, and here's the deal. We're going to close with this and kind of bring it all back to uh, the beginning. If you look at your text, you'll see there's verses 9 through 20. And what you'll notice is there's probably some brackets around those verses. Do you see it? What you'll also notice is you maybe see a footnote that says, hey, verses 9 through 20 weren't a part of some of the earliest manuscripts. Right? So we put brackets around them. Now, we could do a whole lesson on the inerrancy of the Bible and how we got Scripture. We ain't got time for that. But we do have time to just hit this briefly and talk about it that... There's basically three options. As people, as people have looked at this through history, scholars have given us three options for what's going on here. Here's the first option. The first option is that the end of Mark's letter maybe got lost. Maybe he was rolling up the scroll and somehow the end of it got lost. We're not sure how that happened. Maybe it burned off somehow. We don't know, but maybe it got lost. And so other scribes came in and filled in the gaps. Second option, Mark ended in verse 8, but as scribes and everybody around sort of looked at that and religious people looked at that, they said, hey, I don't think he intended to end in verse 8. Like, why would you end that way, Mark? And so they thought, hey, we need to go back and add in some things. And we know from the other gospels what happened, so let's just go back and add that in. Second option. Third option is that Mark intended to end in verse 8, and then maybe people got frustrated or whatever, and they're just like, hey, we got to get some more in there. But Mark intended to end in verse 8. Here's the option I go with, option three. I, I believe Mark intended to end in verse eight. I believe that for a couple reasons, just briefly. One is verses nine through 20. If you just read them, they don't fit Mark's literary style. You know what does fit Mark's literary style? Ending in verse eight. Being abrupt, right? Just go back and listen to this series, catch it on the podcast, read this gospel. Mark says immediately 40 plus times. He's always going and blowing. You're just leaning in like Jesus calms the storm and then they go eat a sandwich. You're like, wait, what? 
And Mark just moves you right along, quick hitters throughout the whole thing. He starts the book and leaves out the little town of Bethlehem. He leaves out the birth of Jesus. Mark chapter 1, how does it start? Jesus gets baptized, dunked in water, comes back out and goes to work. Starts healing people. Because that's Mark. That's his literary style. So it makes sense to me that in, in verse 8, like, and people were scared, and they told no one that Mark would say, yep, that's where we're cutting it off. <laughs> and he would make us all frustrated, like, that's it? And so I, that's why I believe, and a lot of other scholars believe, that, that he stopped in verse, verse 8. Now, some of you may have more questions. Some of you may want to study this fur- further and geek out over this. If you're one of those people, I would encourage you, and write this down, to look up Google, kids, Daniel Wallace. And you can specifically Google this if you're writing this down. Is what we have now what they wrote then? Daniel Wallace is what we have now what they wrote then. Uh, Daniel Wallace is a professor that actually taught at the seminary I attended. Uh, But he's not just a professor at that seminary that I attended. He has gone all over the world researching the manuscripts of the Bible and pulling them all together and and getting facts about them and seeing the discrepancies and and talking about them. And actually, I've heard him do a live talk of this is what we have now, what what they wrote then about the whole Bible, the validity of the Bible. And he does a fantastic job. He's world-renowned for this. And so if this brings up more questions, you want to learn more, dig more, look him up and watch that. It will serve you well. And then the last thing I would say about it is don't get caught up in it too much. Like, go investigate but don't get hung up on it too much. Uh, one of the things that was most helpful to me in all of my life as a Christian and then later in life as a pastor was talking to a guy named Dr. Wayne Grudem. Uh, Dr. Grudem, again, you don't have to know who that is, uh, but he literally wrote the book on systematic theology. And he's actually in Phoenix. He teaches at Phoenix Seminary. So I've gotten to, to know him. My wife is with his wife in a pastor wife's group. And we go to a Christmas party. The guys get to go every year to their house for the Christmas party at the end of their study together. And I remember uh, two Christmases ago, one of the older ladies who leads my wife and these other pastor wives were going through the Christmas story. And she's this, you got to picture this older lady who's just really this strong Bible teacher, super adamant about every detail. And she's walking us through it. And she's like, yeah, and then Joseph and Mary, I mean, they're on these donkeys. And they're riding through the night. And how crazy must that have been? She was pregnant. And then they get to, to Bethlehem. And they can't, they can't find a room. And so and, and she says this. She, she looks at Dr. Wayne Grudem. And she says, And then they went to like what, like a barn or a cave? Wayne, where did they go? Where was Jesus born? And Wayne, with no expression, Dr. Grudem, with no expression on his face, says, I don't know. (laughs) And Bev, the lady, this fiery Bible teacher, was just like, Dr. Grudem, excuse me? And I remember, and we had some pastors in the room, some seminary students in the room, and all of us were just like, what? (laughs) Like, Dr. Grudem, barn or cave, you're not sure? And in that moment, I saw the humility of a man who is brilliant, who knows a lot about the Bible. Say, hey, there's some things that we don't have completely nailed down. You have an infinite God and finite people, but we have faith, right? Not blind faith, confident faith. 
And that began to free me a little bit to not argue over, over every nuance, to lean on the power of the resurrection, the power of 66 books of the Bible written by 40-plus authors, written over three languages, three continents, 1,500 years that all communicate Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. And it allowed me, freed me up to lean on that, right? And I would encourage you to do that as well. Here's where we end. Mark ends this abruptly. Hey, it's a kind of a cliffhanger ending. Like, what happens next? Here's why I believe Mark ends this way, and here's what happens next. You. You happen next. You see, this entire series, that, that's what has been the focus. Who do you say that I am? Not just the disciples. Who do you say that Jesus is? 16 chapters, 10 months, 35 sermons. You don't just know the beat, the rhythm, and the melody of Jesus. Like, good guy, good teacher, died on the cross. You don't just know those things. You're not just able to sing along a little bit. You have learned the content of Jesus Christ. His person, his work, his, his character and nature. So Mark ends abruptly to invite you into the story. Who do you say that he is? What are you going to do with Jesus? Are you going to let it end in verse 8, or are you going to continue to live out this story of Jesus? That's what Mark is putting you to. That's where we end today is, are you living out the story of Jesus? Are you living out his grace, his truth? with your words and your deeds? Is it changing you? Like after 10 months and 35 sermons and 16 chapters, is it changing you? You need to ask that question. You need to ask the question, not only am I living out the story of Jesus, am I continuing it, but who am I inviting into it? You see, if we believe Jesus is who he said he was, if he really rose from the grave, if he's changed our lives, we would invite people into that story. So how are you living out the story of Jesus? Who are you inviting into it? There's a perfect way to invite people into it. Next Sunday, we, we do end this series. <clears throat> we end the Gospel of Mark. And we start a new series. We do that at Phoenix Bible Church. We start new series from uh, time to time. And we do that next Sunday with a series called What is Love? And we're going to talk about marriage and singleness, and dating, and friendship, and sex, and parenting. And listen, that hits everybody. So how are you living the story? Who are you inviting into the story? Invite them back next Sunday to come hear about love and what that says about relationships and what Jesus says about all of that, all right? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this abrupt ending that pushes us to think about what's next. What's next in our life? What's next for our church? At the end of the day, are we marked by a set of religious beliefs, a set of moral teachings, a set of affinities, or are we marked, transformed by the resurrected Christ? And God, I pray that all of us in this room, after going through this, this account of, of the life, death, and resurre resurrection of Jesus, we would be marked by Jesus, that we would live for Jesus. We would love Jesus. We would lead other people to Jesus. We would continue this story that Mark ends to see Jesus glorified and to see people filled with joy. We pray for that in the name of Jesus.
Amen.